Open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of James. The book of James, chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. This morning, I am grateful for partners in the work of preaching. I know that you are. It is good to hear the Word preached from different voices. If for any reason, it's like, I don't know, I used to drink a lot of Coke, and then I'd have a Sprite to reset my palate. Because I liked Coke, but sometimes you, you know, you just need a little something else. And uh, it's okay, preaching is like that. And uh, so I hope that your palate is reset. We had some very fine preachers these last few weeks. Thank you, Jim and Matt. And uh, I am back. But it's the same, same word, of course. It was fun to just go to church with my family and to sit in Kevin Johnson's seat over here. That was on purpose. Well, a good doctor will ask you your backstory, uh, medical history, uh, family history, uh, recent symptoms. A good doc will listen. Now, maybe he kind of knows where this is going, and he's seen this before, and he has what he needs pretty quickly to give you what you need, but you're not going to be terribly comfortable with the prescription until the doctor has listened good and well to your backstory. Well, how unusual it would be if the doctor told you the end of your story and then prescribed patience. Like usually he asks your story, uh, but doesn't fill you in on the rest of your story. Maybe there's a prognosis. And rarely it would seem, I can't imagine a scenario in which patience would be the prescription. No one's making money off that if for any reason. No, that's not a thing. But it was for James, a good doctor of our souls this morning, and more than just our souls. Let's read together James chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth? being patient about it until he receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be your yes and your no be your no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. And this is God's word for us this morning. Well, we've been in the book of James, this letter, since the first Sunday of August. We took December off to spend time in Matthew's gospel account. Then we had an extra sermon. We've got three sermons left in this book, uh, one this Sunday, one next Sunday. Uh, But then we'll have a guest preacher at the end of January. We we host here at our church uh, a preaching workshop for preachers in our region 
And one of our guest instructors will stay over through the weekend and preach for us from Revelation chapter 17. So that should be interesting enough for you. Make sure that you're here. First Sunday of February, we expect to baptize a few brothers and a sister, and so we'll look forward to that. Second Sunday of February, we will return to James and land it. I'll tell you where we're headed after that in the coming weeks. Well, one thing we've grown to appreciate in this study of James is that James has written an elegant letter. And he's not famous for that. That is not how this book is typically described. And there are some good reasons for that. Take today's passage, for example. I determined the range of material here, and so you're trusting that it all hangs together. But you might not have drawn the lines just this way. We have something like a casserole. Uh, A little bit of everything's in there. Be patient for the coming of the Lord. Okay, so we've got patience and, and the return of Jesus. Illustration of farming, that makes sense. Do not grumble. Sounds like a different topic. And then, uh, lest you be judged, judge is standing at the door. Seems like a different doctrine. Now this matter of suffering and patience. So there's patience again. The prophets, steadfastness comes up. The compassion and mercy of the Lord and his purpose. In verse 12, uh, don't swear oaths by, he- don't swear on heaven or earth or by any other oath. Let your yes be your yes and your no be your no. That for sure feels like some other matter of subject so that you may not fall under condemnation, he says. James is always often taken as kind of making a mix of things. You know, put it all in there. Um, you, you know, there's some main things and some secondary things, but they're all kind of loosely related. James is like the Proverbs, you know, just, just give me a bunch of uh, practical insights, and James is certainly full of those. But I'm afraid, as we've learned, and I want you to remember that James is very careful in the construction of his letter. For, for example, just look here, less like a casserole, it's more like a holiday turkey with stuffing, follow me. Verse 7, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. There's your holiday turkey. All right, now, there's things inside the turkey uh, that flow from the turkey that are flavored by the turkey, and that's everything else. So now we're going to enter the cavity. Uh, See the farmer waits, the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and late rains. You be patient as well. Establish your hearts. Here it is. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. And after each of the four movements, we're going to see this return to a refrain with a different angle on the Lord's coming. Do not grumble, verse 9, against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering, verse 10, take the prophets. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard about Job. Have you not seen the purpose of the Lord? In the end for Job, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. There's a whole story there, and he refers to the end of Job's. In verse 12, don't swear by heaven or earth or take other oaths. Let your yes be your yes and no be your no. 
he ends, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Now I'll press into that, into those movements and how they're connected to the turkey at the top as we uh, get into our passage. But there at a high level, I just want you to appreciate as you come back to James the rest of your life, because I'm not going to preach it again. Not that we'll all be in the same place for the rest of our lives. Maybe you'll move and have another preacher who will go through James. But be nice to him if he says, you know, James is just like the Proverbs. And frankly, the Proverbs are more organized than they often are given credit for. But I digress, and I like your next preacher. But James is elegant. You get it? James is elegant, and he's careful. And I'm not, not just, I'm not just showing you within this immediate passage, but this passage is James coming in for a landing on the whole book. And do you remember how his book started on the theme of steadfastness? You remember? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Oh, the passage just before our passage this morning concerned the great oppression that his readers were receiving at the hands of the extremely wealthy in their day. Testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In verse 12 of chapter 1, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him, a nod to Jesus' coming. Here, in between these two passages I just read from James chapter 1, he addresses them concerning prayer for wisdom. Well, next week we'll have a passage on prayer. And here's another bit of elegance. James begins by speaking to his readers more as individuals concerning their steadfastness and the coming of the Lord and the crown they're to receive and the prayers they're to pray. Of course, they pray them together and they walk together as Christians. But here at the very end, these very themes are, have gone corporate and congregational. Next week, it'll be prayer for one another. You see, James has written and composed for us an elegant, beautiful letter. He does not always so quickly allow the connections to uh, be seen, but with some meditation and some help, they are plain. Well, James fills us in this morning on a missing part of our story. James is not a doctor of part of you. If you're in real trouble, you're going to have docs coming together. The heart one, the lung one, and the something else one, maybe the liver one. Um, there's eye doctors and ear doctors, and they have their specialty, and we need them all, and we need them to coordinate sometimes. Now, James is not even a doctor of the, of the soul, as if um, I'm emerging sort of medical imagery here and what the Bible is about. But the Bible is not just about your soul. You see, James starts with the inside of you, Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Be patient, therefore, until the coming of the Lord. Or let me put it another way. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Uh, this morning's sermon involves some hard work. And it is, in the first place, heart work. 
But it is not just heart work. It makes its way out to your hands, if you will. What, what we say, our speech, the way we refer to truth, the way we speak of and to one another, all, all of these things, he's concerned with the whole person. Starts in the soul, but you really can't pull apart your words from your soul out of the overflow of the mouth, the heart speaks. Of course, we know this. But it's good to talk about whole people. For he's about making us whole Christians, whole humans, whole people, not just saved souls. He's about transforming us. That is part of his salvation purpose. And so we've given the subtitle to our series, Grace for Change from the book of James. He's about saving us by his implanted word, by the son he's sent to die for our sins and forgive us. But he's also united us and reconciled us to himself, and he does not finish until he is done with what he started. And part of that story is the coming of Jesus. And that is often the missing part of our stories. We may look back to the cross or to creation to understand our purpose or the cross to understand how we are reconciled to God. We may consider that Jesus is now interceding for us and take great comfort appropriately in that, our sympathetic and attentive and praying Savior he is. But James draws our attention to the end of things, to the coming of our Lord. Whole Christians need a whole Christ. And Christ is for us interceding, yes, he has died for us, yes, And when he gave us the Lord's Supper, which we'll celebrate later, he spoke about his coming because they needed to hear it. When the Apostle Paul preached in Athens, he preached about creation and the coming of Jesus and the coming judgment in the future. A deficient understanding of and vision of the future Christian church will lead to a deficient Christian life, and expression of church life. James is a good doctor. You see, he has understood the symptoms, and he knows the circumstances, and he is prescribing patience for the coming of the Lord as an answer to the church's problems. The answer is not always, look back to the cross, we never leave the cross. But it is not just that. There is more medicine for us. There is a whole Christ and his work for us, including the glorious promise of his return for us, even if everyone else between now and then is against us. So the big question for us this morning is, what good is the Lord's coming if he has not Come. Now, it'll be good when he comes, right? But what good is his coming later in the meantime for us? What good is the Lord's coming for our work to overcome temptation? What good is Christ's return for our resistance of temptation? What good is a vision of Jesus in in judgment for our joy in trials? And what good is our expectation of Jesus to come for our 
endurance. In other words, what good is the Lord's coming if he has not come yet? Well, it's worth much good for us. And in the four movements of James' uh, little section here, uh, we're going to unpack the turkey, take out the stuffing, and uh, consider how it has been flavored by his vision of the coming of the Lord. Or, Or let me make a little point along the way here. You need the doctrine of the return of Christ if you're going to live faithfully in the meantime. Doctrine and life, don't pull them apart. Don't talk about how there's doctrine, but what I really need is help to live. There's no help for life apart from the truth about Jesus. You don't get a sentence away from a command in your New Testament apart from the truth concerning Jesus. Sound doctrine is what we're after. Clear, accurate truth concerning Jesus this morning, concerning what he will do for us in the future. And what he will do for us in the future, if that can be made plain to our hearts, if we can establish our hearts in that vision, will do us an awful lot of good for our relationships and lives. This is how the scriptures work, the Christian life work works. It is how preaching also works. Four movements. To answer that question, what good is the Lord's coming if he hasn't come yet? Well, in the first place, the Lord's coming is precious, and so we can hold on for it, verses 7 through 8. Be patient. Be patient like a farmer. The farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. A simple picture to portray what James means by patience. He's going to build on this, but he starts with a simple picture. So let's just think about farming for a minute. Um, What do farmers do? Well, they do all kinds of things. They do all kinds of things that James doesn't mention. Uh, they plow the soil. They plant the seed. Other things, I'm sure. I don't need to know much more at this point. James has put the emphasis on a particular thing they do, which is kind of hard to call it a thing they do at all. See how the farmer waits. So you imagine him in the field when I say farmer. No, no. Imagine the farmer in his house. Imagine the farmer sleeping. Imagine the farmer looking out the window. Imagine the farmer checking the forecast. Imagine the farmer waiting. That is much of the job. It is the relevant part of the job for us because the Christian life is like that. It is like waiting. Wait. These farmers waited expectantly for the early and late rains, fall and spring rains, for fall and spring crops. The farmers waited eagerly, eagerly. What for? 
Well, there's an accent here on on the work of waiting, but also on what they're waiting for. Uh, The farmer waits for precious fruit from the earth. So the Christian life is like waiting, but you need more than that. You need to know what you're waiting for. And the farmer can help us there too. So you look out at the field and you see dirt and nothing else is going on. But in time, in time, with rain, precious fruit emerges from the earth. You have a factory way of thinking about the Christian life. I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to do this, and then this is going to happen. I will do this, and then I will do this, and then this is going to happen. Um, There's a lot to do. We have commands in the Bible. But stay away from that factory imagery, please. Certainly don't treat each other with a factory worker mindset as we get about discipleship. Now, the farmer waited and waited and waited for precious fruit. Sometimes we need to be reminded to be like farmers and to look at the horizon, not down at the next thing we must do or around at the next trouble we expect to face. But we look out at the horizon at the coming of the Lord and we establish our hearts there. So whatever you're doing with your hands, let us make sure that our hearts are established with Christ at his coming. Hope you're looking forward to that. For it will be a glorious day. Precious fruit, valuable. Why else would the farmer give his whole life to dirt? Because of precious fruit that comes up out of the dirt. Valuable fruit with which he feeds his family in his own person that he sells to provide shelter and everything else his family needs. Precious fruit, eagerly awaiting precious fruit, not just expectantly, but eagerly for this fruit is very, very good. And so the coming of the Lord was precious fruit for his saints. We eagerly, eagerly await it. The Christian life is like that. It's like farming. On the one hand, this confronts our tendency to turn the Christian life into a whole lot of just doing. But on the other hand, this is not exactly passive. Establishing our hearts in the coming of the Lord takes concerted effort. To put yourself under preaching is part of putting yourself in the way of a vision of his coming so that your heart is transformed on the spot. You're doing the work, sitting there, listening attentively. But you've got to take it with you too. It's for meditating on. It's for pondering. It's for setting your heart toward like a compass, your true north, the horizon of your imagination, the backdrop of the return of Jesus. Like a farmer looks down 
the road at the coming precious crop. Well, James will get more practical, and that's good, and he's always happy to do that. But he starts on the inside of things. And having established this matter of establishing our hearts and helping us see that just as the farmer waits, we must wait, we are ready now to hear some more practical measures. Some of us are happy to get to the practical measures first, like, why don't you just tell me to stop grumbling? And maybe that's how you parent. Just stop grumbling. Ooh, it's not quite enough. It's not quite enough, or we wouldn't have all of this. Um, we're kind of, some of us are a little bit like really stupid farmers. I, I mean, I don't even think one exists. Um, and, but I mean, just imagine a farmer who, who plows and then goes in and then he goes out after lunch. It's like, what's going on here? And the wife says, sweetheart, seed. Oh, yeah, 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 okay. And then he spends a day seeding. And he goes in, we get lunch, sit on the porch. What's up with this? I thought it was supposed to work. And his wife says, sweetheart, the rains. You see? Is your Christian life like that? Like, where is it at? And you're always looking about 10 minutes ahead. I mean, you should be more patient with yourself in a way. Some of you need to be less patient with yourself. But as it is, the whole Christian life is one of patience and waiting. And actually, it's in a proper posture of waiting, hearts established in the Lord's coming, that you have the resources. That vision is for you the energy and the resources and the power for obedience in answer to simple commands like do not grumble against one another. It seems so hard not grumbling. Against your spouse in the home, children against each other, and brothers and sisters. Well, the power is in not looking at them, but looking, looking up and out. James has things for us in the right order. He has not skipped the heart. And having addressed our hearts with a call for patience and to establish them for the coming of the Lord now, he moves on to more practical matters. Second, the coming of the Lord is near so we can hold our fire. It's precious so we can hold on for it. It is near so we can hold our fire. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. We move from the imagery of farming now to the imagery of a door. It seems like there's a bit of tension here. The farming illustration, you know, put the reins way out there. Um, but this illustration with this language of at the door seems to put it right at the door. Like he's right there. Near, in, in other words. <clears throat> Apparently, whatever it means, which we'll explore, this nearness is strength for resisting sin. In particular, the sin of grumbling that he has been addressing in this congregation. 
They have been biting and devouring each other. Bitter jealousy has reigned. He's addressed them with that whole illustration of a fire and how like a spark their words are lighting the whole thing on fire. And he's getting ahead of it with God's word and some, and some water. And uh, these folks were having no small amount of trouble. And they were having difficulty with those outside the church, those who were oppressing them, but they were giving in to temptation. They were having difficulty with outsiders, but were becoming difficult themselves. They were sinned against, but they were falling into sin themselves. They were experiencing real pain, but they were becoming a real pain. You don't get to become a real pain just because someone else hurts you. And it's not mean for me to say that. It's kind. It is a terrible life to be mean to other people because someone has been mean to you. And it doesn't take away the hurt. James is not undermining his reader's real experience, and we don't need to do that with each other. We can legitimize one another's real suffering, as James has for his readers. Oh, he's reserved the harshest language for the ungodly rich in their community in the passage just before it. Read it when you go home if you like. No, he's legitimized. He's comforted them with those strong words. But he doesn't let them then kind of live as they want. If, if, if you think it's compassionate to, to give someone else sort of leash to sin in any way because they've been through a lot, you are not being compassionate. That doesn't mean you need to yell at them, but you need to strategize for their sanctification with appropriate words concerning sin, like James does. Learn from the apostle. I'll trust you to figure that out in, in your own relationships. It requires wisdom, and, and James says to ask God for it. We need it not only for our own selves, but for our dealings with with one another, of course. You know, the Lord's coming is near. And so he says we should hold our fire. Now, how does it work that the Lord's coming helps us hold our fire, not grumble against each other, not throw each other under the bus with our words? Well, in two ways. In the first place, so that you may not be judged. Now, it may be that James has final, final judgment in mind here, like forever judgment, condemnation, and hell, and that he does warn us, um, and he, he warns us concerning the death of our soul and, and speaks at the very end of his, his letter. If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. There is the possibility of wandering that leads to apostasy, Maybe that he has that on his mind. I think his pen is moving a little too quick for that, or at least for my, my ear. And it doesn't have to be read that way. For at the coming of Jesus, all of our sins will be exposed for what they are. Now, the, the sinner who is trusted in Jesus, you and me, you, I pray, uh, is justified, and so that our judgment has fallen on the Son as He died on the cross. We need the cross. And so we will not be judged 
for our sins. And yet when Jesus comes, all of our sins will be shown for what they are. The Apostle Paul used the imagery of a fire and imagine you've got works that please the Lord, empowered by the Spirit, and you've got grumbling and slander and these other things. Put it in a pile that is coming. The fire starts and all the bad deeds are gone, shown for nothing, judged as worthless. Let us not be a church full of words that will be judged as worthless. Careful, careful with your tongues, careful with how we speak against one another. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not so that you may not be judged. Whatever that means, be a little afraid of it. It's bad. And it's when Jesus comes. And it doesn't undermine justification. But there's another way in which the coming of the Lord helps us not grumble. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Okay, so he's already made the point that your deeds will be shown for what they are. And maybe he's, he's um, putting that a different way. Uh, behold, he's near. But I think there's a comfort here as well. And it helps us solve the little puzzle of how all of this relates with patience. For what is grumbling against one another, slander, cruel words, etc., except you forcing judgment on another person because you are impatient about Jesus' timing? Jesus is not quick enough. I got this. That's what it is. When we, when we slander each other and we speak an ill word about each other in order that someone might look down on somebody and think ill of somebody, maybe it's a, a true word that's unflattering. Maybe it's a true word that's unflattering, but not the whole story. Maybe it's an untrue word that's unflattering. I hate to say some of these are worse than others. I mean, no need to. They'll all be judged as worthless, right? But all of those are ways of getting ahead of Jesus, and landing a verdict. We make judgments and we discern sin from error. That's part of what this sermon requires of us, in ourselves and with others. But that's different than what he's talking about here. Bitter speech against one another. Grumbling against one another. Another. If anyone's going to be against anyone, let it be the Lord Jesus. So don't force judgment. Don't get ahead of Jesus. Lest judgment fall on your own head. That's how I take this. The Lord's coming is precious so we can hold on for it. The Lord's coming is near so, friend, you can hold your fire. We need to say a word about this matter of nearness. Because it's been about 2,000 years since he said that, and his readers, they're dead. Um, So someone might object, uh, James is either sincere and he's mistaken, or James is insincere and he's manipulative. This is just more Bible, uh, more manipulation. Doesn't matter if it's, someone say, doesn't matter if it's true or not. It matters if it's helpful to me or not. No. Christianity is based on an historic truth, the death and the resurrection of our Lord. The whole thing's got to be true. 
So is he coming or not? Maybe easy answer, yes. But what did he mean that he's at the door? His coming is, is near. I'll address this with a few questions. We'll pull it apart. What does it mean that it's near? This is just abbreviated. There is a difference between immediacy and eminence. An immediate return would mean in a moment he'll be here. An eminent return would mean any moment he could come. Uh, Peter addresses this matter to some extent with his own readers, speaking of a thousand days being as a day with the Lord sounds like an easy way out, but it's the truth of it. The Lord Jesus has died, buried, he was raised, he's interceding, the next thing is his coming. Longer than maybe they expected, but not in contradiction with the apostles' words. He does not pin down a time to that topic of time now. Did James know the time? The Lord Jesus, in his humanity and earthly life, did not know the time. Only the Father, Jesus, would know it now. The emphasis in Jesus' teaching and in the apostles' teaching, including here, is not on the exact time or we'd be given it. It is on readiness, whatever the time. And so we can take that message home with us. And then why not yet? Why hasn't he returned yet? Well, Peter helps us out with that as well. And that the Lord is patient that we might come to repentance. So as we long for the return of Jesus, let us pray and sing as we have, Lord Jesus, come quickly. But let us understand that if he has not come, it's because the Lord is patiently waiting that all might come to repentance. He has his many purposes. Many, many purposes. Uh, Purposes expressed in Scripture and very specific purposes for you not expressed in such specificity in Scripture. Know that he is about a purpose. Now to our third point, third movement. The Lord's coming is purposeful so we can hold up under fire. You have seen the purpose of the Lord. James writes, the end, the goal, the telos. You've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. What's especially distinctive in this section is that word purpose, and it's where I'm drawing your attention. I would offer that as he draws our attention to the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord and their example of suffering and patience, and to Job, that James expects of his readers a certain biblical literacy. So, as an aside, let us receive that expectation from James and be about growing in our knowledge of the scriptures. And about investing in our children in their knowledge of the scriptures. And our grandchildren in their knowledge of the scriptures. And one another and our knowledge of the scriptures. Let us put ourselves under the word. Which is being under the preaching of the word. And when you miss a Sunday, go after the audio and listen to the sermon. Some of you listen to the sermon another time or two through the week. And that's very good. I did that uh, in... um, In high school, as I recall, 
It's not a bad practice. Listening to preaching is a good practice. I need to do that and do so. Put yourself under the word. Put yourself in front of the word. Read the scriptures. We are so fortunate to have the Bible in a book and to have it so readable in translations that come over to us quite naturally. And uh, you may not always understand what you read. Just keep reading. Bible and year plans are a great idea. If a whole church was working through the Bible in a year, oh, there'd be some tough sledding at times and, and endurance. You'd need that. Um, but you'd be making connections in the preaching that you wouldn't otherwise, otherwise make. Reading the Bible through is an investment in this hour we spend together every week. It's such a priority. It's the most important hour we spend in a week as a church. It's the most important hour that you spend as a Christian under the preached word. And all your Bible reading is not only an investment in your own soul on the spot, but it's an investment in your listening as a Christian. And Peter assumes a certain matter of literacy. But let me add another one. Put yourself under the word and put yourself in front of it and put yourself inside the word. Meditate on the word. Put it on your doorposts. Get it all over you. Surround yourself with it. Meditate on it day and night. Last week's exhortation from Jim, so helpful. The blessed man, the Lord Jesus, the king, meditated on the word of God day and night. And we're called to do the same. Just like our Savior, he needed to meditate on the day, word of the Lord day and night. Well, so do you, and so do I. And such are those who follow Jesus in this, who will be like trees firmly planted with him. And when you put yourself inside it, you put yourself inside its story, you see. A story that has a beginning, a middle, and an end, to make it simple. A beginning in creation and, and the fall condemnation and corruption. That beginning explains so much. Thank God there's more. The cross and the resurrection in the middle. And then the end, the missing part for a lot of your stories, the medicine you need for these sins you're tackling, the coming of the Lord Jesus at the end. Your story has an end. If you're a Christian, your story has an end. And everything between now and then is purposeful. He's working toward a goal of your perfection and completion through steadfastness, through trial. The Lord's coming is purposeful so you can hold up under fire. Need some encouragement from the example of those who have gone before us in similarly difficult circumstances? Take the prophets. Prophets sawn in two Isaiah, Jeremiah hunted by those from his hometown, suffering at the hands of his own people. Hosea's broken marriage. The list goes on. Just go home and read the prophets. Don't just listen to what they're saying, but taking James' lead, watch the prophet faithfully speak in an age that is rejecting his word. Watch the prophet faithfully speak and receive the insults of his own people. That's what happened with the prophets. I think that's why James brings it up here, because they can relate. Uh, some of these people are grumbling and insulting others, and those who are being insulted are tempted to grumble and insult back, 
And he's saying, wherever it's coming from, don't revile your neighbor. Don't grumble against one another. Look at the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord and endured suffering with patience. And as you read the prophets, difficult as they can be, admittedly, watch how they patiently endure suffering and take away that simple encouragement from their life under fire. And of course, if you've got to pick someone to read, read about Job, who suffered greatly and lost his family, his whole business. And he was under fire from his friends who threw all kinds of answers at him, including there must be something wrong with you, man. And his wife who said, why don't you just curse God and die? Might as well say he also lost his wife. But Job did not. The Lord gives and takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's what he said. We're told that Job didn't sin. But God was compassionate and merciful with him. What does that refer to? Well, Exodus 34, that's how God, through his covenant name, wants to be known. But it was also shown to Job in his story. He was blessed in the end. Even before the end, God shows up in a whirlwind to confront him with his majesty and his sheer sovereignty because Job, while exemplary, did take the bait to some extent defending himself and his righteousness, having received the terms from his friends who said, you must have done something wrong. He said, well, no, I didn't. And he makes a list. He crossed a line. And in mercy, the Lord showed up in majesty. And Job received it. And in the end, Job's family and business and life is restored. And in the course of his earthly life, that restoration happened, which is no exact promise for us, but it is a parable of what is a promise for us, in that no matter how low Job Job was, we know the end of his story, and no matter how low you are, and how hard anyone is on you, you know the end of your story. And it's precious fruit, it's blessing, it is the Lord's compassion and his mercy on you. The Lord's coming is precious so we can hold on for it. It is near so we can hold our fire. It is purposeful so we can hold up under fire. And last, the Lord's coming is the coming of the kingdom so we can let go of this world. You might feel this is a bit of a stretch, but follow me here. Verse 12, above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or earth or any other oath, but let your yes be your yes and your no be your no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. One expository commentary, and that's a commentary that is probably built off sermons. It's a commentary, but it's more expositional, more sermonic. Um, Dan Doriani's commentary, which is helpful, um, does verse 7 through 11. I presume that was a sermon. And then there's, you know, verse 13 and following. And then he's, he's got a chapter on verse 12. The chapter's literally titled, A Note on Verse 12. <laughs> and I thought, I don't know what happened here. That dude didn't preach a sermon on verse 12. <laughs> he might have touched on it along the way. But, uh, you know, he just worked through his thing. He made a commentary, and good for him. 
But, um, but you know, I'm going to tuck verse 12 into verse 7 through 11, if that's all right with you. You know, a couple reasons why this goes with the rest. And this will pay off in a few moments, so follow me. First, the author is toggled back and forth. Precious fruit, the judge is standing at the door. Blessing, compassion, and mercy, that you may not fall under condemnation. To me, there's a little back and forth that fits. Secondly, this matter of the tongue. This has to do with our speech. We can use our, our, our mouths to mistreat one another, impatiently bringing judgment on another person because we're not willing to wait on Jesus. And we can use our words to misrepresent the truth and reality. And in that way, using words in an unauthorized fashion in order to force the kind of life we want now rather than waiting for the perfect life that Jesus assures us later. These believers would have been tempted to fudge on the truth, as we often are when we're under pressure, persecuted, maligned. It's just easy to be a little slippery. One of my favorite pastors and theologians and apologists is one of the most embarrassing when on his feet in front of a crowd that is not welcoming. He's even famous for being winsome, but I find him slippery at times. Be very careful when you are under pressure in a room or with a person, and you consider that the question that they have asked has an answer that they will disapprove of. Let your yes be your yes and your no be your no. Speak in forthright terms. We live in an age of lies. Lies, lies, lies. Let the church and let her people be plain spoken and honest and forthright. There is nothing that you need to apologize for in this book. There is nothing that you need to be embarrassed about in this book. There is nothing you could say from this book that you should be afraid to speak. Because Jesus is coming, and he's a judge, and everything will be shown for what it is, which should put a little bit of fear into you, but it should comfort you just the same, because whatever is being done to you in that moment will be shown for what it is as well. You see this matter of speech and grumbling and then twisting the truth. I think it all goes together. What is this matter of oaths specifically? Well, Jesus, and this is the last reference we have to his Sermon on the Mount, where he spoke concerning life in the kingdom. And the Pharisees and others, and was popular in that day to swear oaths on various things based on how truthful you wanted to be. So someone would swear on the temple and then say, ooh, but I didn't swear on the gold of the temple, you see. No. No. There was a whole sliding scale of truthfulness based on what you were swearing an oath on. I swear on heaven. I swear on earth. I swear on heaven and earth. I swear on this. I'm not saying you can't say the word honestly. I'm not saying you can't say the, the words, I'm being truthful. But why should you ever have to say that? When I hear that, and I don't want to put you on edge when you're talking to me, but you know what I mean. If someone says, I'm being honest. Well, like, what is it about you that I don't know that you had to say that? 
So be plain spoken and clear and transparent in your speech such that someone doesn't have to interrogate you to figure out what you really think. In an age of lies, speak the truth. The last thought here is, I don't know, it feels a little anticlimactic, but maybe not for James. Maybe we just don't take this matter of truthfulness as seriously as James does. He says above all. Now, I actually take that to be now bringing things to a close. In other words, I don't say this is necessarily a hierarchy, but might as well. It's here. It's at the end. It doesn't seem to fit. Maybe the problem's with us and not with James. Truthfulness is a problem. Clarity with the truth is a problem. The whole story is a problem. It's a great temptation for Christians, certainly Christians under pressure. So let us all just be warned by that and let us call ourselves up to kingdom life. That's why I gave it this header. The Lord's coming is the coming of the kingdom so we can let go of this world. And that same sermon Jesus preached where he's saying these kinds of things, and James is basically quoting his brother here, he also said, you lose your life to save it. What good is it if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? So let us be warned, even as we're encouraged by the coming of the Lord. James has served us quite well this morning, has he not? Friends, you will not succeed in your struggle against sin apart from a whole Christ, including a vision of the end, which changes your insides, which changes your your outsides. Friends, the effect of not giving yourself to the scriptures is not just that you would not know God's word, but that you might find yourself thinking you are God, which is what they were doing, judging one another with their words, presuming to judge the law and to be a judge over God himself. Friends, a deficient vision of Christ at his coming will lead to deficient living now. And often enough, troubles in a church, we've had them, we can have them again, we'll always have some, are not just owing to a deficient vision of the cross or even of the resurrection or Jesus' present reign, but often enough that we've not been taking the medicine of his return that there is a missing part of our story. Well, let us not miss it, because his coming is glorious. His coming is greatly encouraging. And that's how I take this section here. I don't take James to be wagging his finger in our face. I take him to be putting his arm around us. Oh, he's spoken sharply with us and called us adulterers earlier in the book, calling us to receive more grace from God. But here, no less than three times, he's addressed us as brothers And I take it that's his way of appealing to us affectionately, even in terms of equality as family, and calling us to a vision of Jesus, the certainty of his coming, that we might wait for the precious fruit of that day. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we give you thanks for the whole good news revealed to us in Scripture, and we confess that we often 
miss some of it because we're inattentive and disinterested. We may even have our hobby doctrines, but we need them all. And so, Father, today, would you help us establish our hearts in the coming of the Lord? Establish our hearts in this word for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And would you convict us of the sin of grumbling and of being untruthful? And would you bring to mind this week and in the days and years ahead that it is not just that we missed the mark in sin, though we did, falling short of your glory, but it is that we are being impatient concerning the return of Jesus. So strengthen us to be patient that we might not grumble or lie and do that by imparting to us through your word a clearer vision of the coming of our Lord. In whose name we pray, amen.